Hello, and welcome to Lady Cryptoid's Spook Show, an eclectic, eccentric, and today enkindle history podcast. I am your host, Lady Cryptoid, and this week's theme is Lost in the Fire. We'll be visiting one of the strangest and most mystical places in the whole world, the fair state of Wisconsin. Think I'm kidding? You're deeply wrong. My roots grow deep in Wisconsin from whence my father's family hails. It's a strange and wonderful place, and one of our areas of interest is part of the Driftless Area, where the land was not covered in glaciers during the last ice age. As a result, southwestern Wisconsin looks more like New England than the plains and prairies of the rest of the Midwest, characterized by steep ridges, spring-fed waterfalls, and trout streams. If I had to choose one word, I'd call Wisconsin incongruous. As you'll learn shortly, there's an awful lot the average person doesn't know about it. A word of warning, although I could only dream of being as descriptive and eloquent as some of the authors of my sources, I have to note that learning about today's events was at times upsetting and disturbing to me. We're going to be thinking about death and what it means in historical study, and as you may be able to infer from the week's theme, the death we're examining was horrific. I promise we'll pick back up into the merely absurd next week. And with that, let's begin. Artifact 1. The Sky Ablaze. Imagine. It's October 1871 in the booming lumber town of Peshtigo, Wisconsin. You've found yourself in a land of unrivaled beauty. Trees as far as you could imagine. Trees as far as you could possibly travel. Virgin forests of oak, maple, beech, ash, elm, and birch over rich, unspoiled land cedar and spruce over rolling hills. The river is good for trout fishing. Deer are plentiful in the woods. And rainfall in an average year keeps the country lush, temperate, and green. The town straddles the Peshtigo River on the east and west, one bridge separating the town's two halves. Farmsteads stand in clearings in the forest the locals call the sugar bush. But thanks to investment from Chicago millionaire William G. Ogden, the town itself has grown quickly around a sawmill and a woodenware factory. A railroad connects Peshtigo to the Peshtigo Harbor on Green Bay. And the population has swollen thanks to an influx of itinerant laborers working on a railroad to connect the town to Chicago. A telegraph line connects the two now. Social life is vibrant in Peshtigo. Two saloons entertain the laborers who find room to sleep at four different inns. On the east side of town, there's a congregational church, and on the west, you'll find the Episcopalian and Catholic churches, as well as the Templars Hall, where the Templars are rehearsing for two upcoming plays. Peshtigo has a schoolhouse, shops, and even a newspaper printed in nearby Marinette. There's very little to imagine for the town but promise. 
Chicago needs lumber, and Peshtigo has it to spare. If trees are one hand of a lumber town, fire is the other. Fire in a frontier town is a fact of life. It's the most efficient way to clear brush out of the forest floor for hunters' better ease, or to transform a clearing into tillable farmland. The work of the sawmill and the lumberjacks creates a tremendous amount of waste, and while the woodenware factory can use some of it, the majority has to be burned. At night in Peshtigo, at any time of year, you would likely see warm little dots of fire to the north and west, sprinkling the horizon where hunters had made camp in the woods. In an average year, fires would burn out safely on their own. The fact that fires usually don't need to be attended to is indeed a fact, and it's taken for granted, even in a particularly dry year. And 1871 is particularly dry. From May to September, it only rained once, and quickly at that. October was proving to be not only dry, but windy too, and in the past few weeks, fires of dangerous size and scope had pushed Peshtigo residents into action. Imagine. It's dusk on October 8th. You're walking down the wooden sidewalks on Oconto Avenue, Peshtigo's main strip. There's been a sense of unease today. Fires are burning in the forest uncontrolled, as they have been for weeks. But that's just the thing. There's no reason to worry as far as you know. The hottest and driest part of the year has passed without serious incident, and if fires have been burning in the woods for the past few weeks, it's likelier than not that they'll just keep stirring up and burning out for the next few, until the heat dies off and the rain comes. But the heat, it has been unnaturally hot today. And around noon, the sun disappeared behind a thick smoke emanating from the forest. Lately, people have taken to burying their valuables near their homes, just in case. As the sun goes down, you see the rail workers carousing drunkenly through the streets. Families have eaten their suppers and turned in for the night, open shutters allowing ash to drift into their homes. You look to the west, where earlier there had been a soft light glowing through the smoke. There's now red. The town is deathly silent, as if collectively holding its breath. You can hear nothing but the wind. As it picks up from a breeze, you hear a moaning from the direction of the trees. It sounds like an enormous beast far off in the forest, waking after a tremendously long slumber. And then it roars. You hear a sound more ferocious and deafeningly loud than you would have imagined possible, as from the direction of this beast, a flaming ball of wood strikes the ground as if thrown from the sky. You are struck speechless by the sight, but it happens again and again. And as the wooden sidewalk you've been walking on explodes into flame, you half run, half stagger into the street. 
Your eyes are turned heavenward, however, because a column of flame has lit the sky itself ablaze. In the air, you see sparks bursting and popping into balls of fire. The wind has half deafened you and pushed you onto your back in the middle of the blaze. Here are a few images seared into your memory on the night of October 8, 1871. Fire in the forest spread through the leaves, not the grass. It burns from the top down. A woman lurches into the street, her hair on fire. It consumes her. She drops to the ground. You knew her. You'd always thought she was beautiful. Horses run through the streets ablaze. Like everyone else, the thought occurs to you that perhaps this is the end of the world revelations foretold. On the banks of the river, whole crowds of men and women stare silently at the sky, mouths agape, stock still like statues, surrounded on all sides by fire. A tree nearby catches fire by its roots. It's burning from the inside out. On the bridge, Crowds run from the east side of town to the west and from the west to the east. Both sides of Peshtigo thought they could escape the blaze through the other, even though the fire was now consuming not from the north, east, south, or west, but from above. In the confusion, people are trampled, bodies falling into the river. The town priest, Father Pernan, starts to pull people into the river. A woman cries, I'm wet. The crowd moves into the river, moved perhaps by the priest to believe that they might be able to save their own lives. Heads bob along the surface. On the banks of the river are two enormous walls and a canopy of fire. It's so bright that you could swear it was daylight. Logs headed toward the mill pond float by and through the crowd, hissing and popping. A woman runs to the riverbank with a swaddle in one arm, her older child holding her other hand. The child makes her way into the river, kept safe and afloat. The woman looks down at the swaddle in horror. My child! Her baby had fallen from her grasp on the way to the river. Grief-stricken, she plunges in and disappears. All around you, mattresses and quilts float by. No doubt whoever owned them was trying to save them, but the fire is too hot, and they continually dry and catch. In the river, hands pop over the surface to splash water over nearby heads so that they don't also catch. Fire darts across the river's surface. After hours in the river, dark returns to the night, and now, unbelievably, those of you who didn't burn or drown must save yourselves from the cold and wet. 
there is ample smoldering fire to warm yourself. Peshtigo is covered in ash. It was a town just yesterday. Now it's a cemetery. The Peshtigo fire took place the same night as the Great Chicago Fire, as well as the Manistee Fire in Michigan. Chicago and Peshtigo were both leveled, but where Chicago lost 2,000 acres and 300 lives, Peshtigo lost 1.2 million acres and anywhere between 1,200 and 2,500 lives. Most of the dead were piles of ash and unidentifiable, and many were the itinerant workers whose labor was building both Peshtigo and Chicago. And that's to say nothing of a lost future. When you study history, you're often confined to examining what did happen after an event, because trying to speculate about an infinite number of possible outcomes is foolish. But I'll suggest what is perhaps an imperfect analogy. Music isn't just the notes you hear. It's the rests, too, the silences, that establish the rhythm and tone of composition. Similarly, places and communities are shaped not only by the events that did occur, but those that didn't. And while Chicago received millions in aid after the fire, Peshtigo received somewhere in the range of $160,000. That isn't nothing in the economy of the 1870s, but it seems to me an undervaluation of both human life and the value of the forests. The fire shaped the economy of not just northern Wisconsin, but perhaps the whole upper Midwest, including the border with Canada. And of equal importance is the fact that three Indian reservations lay in the region of the fire. What might be different for the Pequot Oneida, Mohicans, and Menominee had the damage been valued differently, and what might be the same. When word finally got to Madison that Peshtigo and the surrounding area had been lost, the governor, Lucius Fairchild, was in Chicago lending a hand. The telegram line in Peshtigo and Marinette had burned down, so news had to be sent from Green Bay. It took two days for news to reach the capital. That's not to say that no one cared about Peshtigo. Wisconsin cared a great deal. Lucius Fairchild's wife, Frances, took de facto control of the state government and rerouted supply carts meant for Chicago up to Peshtigo. The Menominee family of Abraham Price, who heeded elders' warnings about fire and soaked the ground around their home, successfully saving their land, offered assistance and hospitality to the victims of the fire. But Peshtigo is the worst fire in known history in terms of human loss. When I was a grade schooler in Chicago, we learned about the Great Chicago Fire and about the city as the phoenix rising from the ashes. Why didn't we learn about Peshtigo, not even as a footnote? If the greatest human loss by fire doesn't qualify Peshtigo as having historical significance, then is human loss ever truly deemed significant? And if Chicago is the phoenix, what is Peshtigo? Artifact 2, The Peshtigo Fire Cemetery, by Matt Spiring. All the fires that seem so historic, so luminous, pale in comparison to this, though we seldom remark it, 
such an out-of-the-way place, no Chicago, the hub of nothing, a Wisconsin lumber town is all. Chicago we know, the great fire, the tale of Mrs. O'Leary's cow, how the flames raced through the city, driving thousands from their homes, how the lake saved many, how two to three hundred were believed to have died. That same night, October 8, 1871, the sky over Peshtigo came alive with fire, the fir trees like sparklers on the 4th of July, houses like kindling, the sawdust exploding, nowhere to run and no way to fight. Nearly 1,200 died in Peshtigo that night. A third burned to unrecognizable lumps they buried en masse in this earth they call the Peshtigo Fire Cemetery, where strangers may stop and display a remarkable ignorance of death. Artifact 3. What becomes important? The following is an interview with poet Matt Spiring. So yeah, and, and the second episode, I think I might take a, a different approach than I was originally going to because I wanted to, I initially was just thinking about Taliesin and then um, through looking at, you know, fires in Wisconsin, I found Peshtigo and from there, it was like, oh, well, I might need to just look at Peshtigo because there's so much to say about it. Right, and nobody, almost nobody seems to know about it. <laughs> yeah. Mention, mention it to anybody, and I've mentioned it to a few people in the last several days, and, you know, nobody's, the only person I ever found that knew about it was somebody who's from Wisconsin. <laughs> sure, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I've seen people say that even in Wisconsin schools, it's not really taught. Yeah, that's part of history, which is crazy. And apparently, it's the worst, worst in terms of loss of life ever in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Well, how did you come to learn about it? Well, that's interesting. I'm thinking back. My my vague recollection, and we're talking a long time ago because I wrote this in 1992. Um, so, but my vague recollection is, and I think it was the National Geographic, but I can't be certain of that. But maybe there's a way of might be a way of Googling National Geographic and Peshtigo and seeing if there was a little. My vague recollection is that there was a tiny article like in the front before they get into all their photographs and all those things. There was some mention in the front of the Peshtigo fire and uh, how it ha you know how it happened the same day as the Chicago fire and blah blah blah, and that spurred me to look it up and and do a poem. So that, what that's, I, what struck you about Peshtigo? Well, just I, I'm a for, I, I'm a, I'm a uh, retired journalist. I was a police and court reporter for many years, and then became a, an editor on the daily newspaper. So uh, I just I just have an interest in in stories. I, I have a I have a curiosity about stories, and particularly stories that are that are fire or crime or anything related. And the fact that mm. you know the, the Chicago fire is the fire where everybody knows about, and here like. A quarter of the number of people died on the very same day in this little out of the way town, and you know, just I just found that interesting in a poetic way. Um, I never know what's going to strike me poetically. I write a lot of poems, um, yeah. So uh, and and it struck me, and and wound up in this poem. Yeah, there seems to be a real sort of push and pull 
you can't talk about Peshtigo without talking about Chicago, right. but you can talk about Chicago without talking about Peshtigo. Right, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> which, is, which is insane given the comparison between, the, of the loss of life anyway. Um, I saw that the, I read that the, the governor of Wisconsin didn't know about Peshtigo because he was too busy helping out in Chicago. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Previous fires had taken down the telegraph lines, so um, they weren't able to get word out because it yeah. was 1871, and and yeah. really right. all connection to yeah. Peshtigo had been burned yeah. down. Yeah. yeah, I haven't read much since about it. I looked it up the other day for the first time in a long time. I, the number I think I have in the in the story seems to be as for deaths seems to be lower than what what I found now, but I don't know where I got this number. It might have been out of the... Out of the uh... It was the initial number. Uh, well, it was 1,152, I think. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, it was, was the original estimation just yeah. from that time. Yeah. Um, and now they're like, well, if you take into consider and, uh, consideration itinerant workers as well, right. um, yeah. it, there's no way of knowing. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so one thing that really struck me about the poem is where strangers may stop and display a remarkable ignorance of death. And it seems like such an urgent um, kind of like plea for people to pay attention. I was wondering where that comes from for you. I think remarkable ignorance is what struck me. Um, well, I considered my ignorance to be remarkable, in fact, I remarked on it in this poem, in a way. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it just seemed incredible that that a, a fire so enormous and and four times as deadly as the Chicago fire could could just be unknown. <laughs> um, you know, I understand why it was a small town, and and I sort of go into that, refer to that um, mm-hmm. small town, out of the way place, but it just it just seemed sad to me. And 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 remarkable that there is so much widespread ignorance. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing that I noticed in your poem. I've always I've always struggled to write poetry because I'm not great with imagery. I also um, I never really write or read fiction too much. I always read nonfiction because right. it's easier for me. But um, I'm struck by one, the fact that in the third stanza, the fir trees like sparklers on the 4th of July, the celebratory image in the middle of the description of the night itself, and then the kind of contrast between fir trees like sparklers and um, sawdust exploding on one hand and then just a few lines down, unrecognizable lumps, how it it's these sort of polar opposites, and it was really kind of satisfying to read in a way. Was that intentional? I I, um, I, I wouldn't say that I planned it that way. A, a lot of times, uh, th- this poem is was published as it was written. Mm-hmm. It was never revised. I, I keep uh, I, I when I write a poem, I consider a poem written. I shouldn't say it was never revised. It might have been revised from what I wrote on a yellow pad, mm-hmm. 
But once I put it in the computer, um, if I change it, uh, the original poem is put in the computer and appended with a date, uh, which isn't on it when it's published. And then if I revise the poem, I, I, I append the, uh, the date of revision. But this poem is exactly as it was written. Never, it was never appended from the first writing, um, and and I can't say I plan a poem. I write what comes to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and now, once there's a revision, there may be a little more planning. But this one was never never revised, so nothing was was planned afterwards. So my my thoughts about it are having having learned about this event, I envisioned what was going on mm-hmm. and how 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 spectacular it would have been to have been there, which is the sparklers on the 4th, you know, uh, trees like sparklers on the 4th of July, houses, sawdust exploding. Um, uh, so uh, I could envision that, and I could also envision the aftermath of that, which was uh, the... the Unrecognizable bodies, the the, the the just horrible devastation. Yeah, but, yeah, so I read. That's, that's where that came from. It, you know, as I say, it wasn't it wasn't pre-planned that I would have a contrast like that, but it was just in my mind. I was envisioning the event and and then the aftermath. Yeah, I'm trying to do the same thing as I read about it because it's like, no, really, we need to be able to put ourselves in this moment, right? Like, right. To, to know that this kind of thing exists and happens. I mean, it's happening in California just about every year. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I read one account where a survivor of the fire said that he saw this pretty girl um, from Peshtigo who I guess he had a crush on or something. He saw her hair burst into fire and she fell and um, he went back to that the next day and all he found were um, two nickel boot buckles and a pile of ash. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, yeah. they said that it was hotter than a crematorium. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Big fires like that apparently are are just incredible. Yeah. Just, just, um, while I'm thinking of it, just to digress yeah. for a second, and I don't, yes. I don't know if it's, it, it's, not, it's definitely on the same subject. Do you know about the Halifax explosion? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> this is going to send you off in a whole other direction. In, 19, in 1917, in the harbor of Halifax, Nova Scotia, a munitions ship exploded, killing over 2,000 people. Oh, my God. Injuring te- over 10,000 people, wiping out a huge portion of Halifax, buildings, Trains thrown off tracks. I mean, just, just total devastation. Anyway, look it up. <laughs> I will. I, I there, certainly will. There, I, I just finished reading an, an entire book about it. Um, I can't. I don't have the book here because I just gave it to a friend uh, yesterday to take along on vacation with him to read. It's just amazing, and no, and that's a very similar thing. Where there's this huge, huge devastation, and almost nobody ever heard about it. Again, an uh, sort of out of the way place to Americans, anyway. Um, but a friend, uh, the friend I gave it to last night, said they had visited Halifax, and 
noticed no mention of this when they were there. <laughs> Although I understand there is a there is a museum there uh, about that you know that is dedicated to this event. You know, in in true crime, there's a in that community there's a conversation about how some victims are more dead than other victims. Like a, a Jean Benet Ramsey would be a more dead victim than like a, a black man, for instance. Right. Or um, I can give you an example from locally, but go ahead. Oh yeah, no, go ahead. I'd love to hear it. Back in the 1980s in Kingston, New York, where I was the police reporter at the time, um, this was the early 1980s, there was a Chinese restaurant owner whose wife was kidnapped from her home. Her body has never been found. Um, there there was a huge international search. Uh, people were arrested. A year later, a man was arrested in Tokyo. One of the suspects was arrested in Tokyo making a phone call with another ransom demand because they were, they were demanding ransom from the uh, restaurant owner to get his wife back. Uh, and to the day he died, he believed, I understand, he believed that she was still alive. He said he would know if she was dead. But the belief, the uh, authorities believe her body was dumped in the in the swamps in New Jersey. Oh, my goodness. Marshlands in New Jersey. And, I mean, this this was a big local story. It was tried in, in federal court in Albany, New York, the capital of New York. Uh, a number of people were convicted. There were a number of people never caught in the case. Um, but, you know, there's the woman, Lim Ying Ang was her name, uh, or Yim, what was it, Yim Ling Ang, E-N-G was the last name. Um, uh, you know, she's one of those that's less dead. <laughs> yeah. Most, you know, most people in the world <laughs> have never heard of her. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I what I was going to say from there is, like, there, there are tragedies that are more tragic and there are tragedies that are less tragic, and it really doesn't matter what the quantifiable facts of the story are. It seems to matter more... Um, I mean, certainly in this case, where economics needs to be, you know, where the where the what the economy depends on, not so much who died, how many people died, and how much did it devastate the area. Yeah, frequently. Although I, I don't know if you can make that overall generalization. Maybe not, but I, I mean, certainly. I can't I, one of the things that I was going to ask you about is what what do we learn from this like beyond fire safety because I think a lot of people that I've read anyway we uh they they're tending to look at it and go um what lessons can be learned about fire and I think that's really important obviously um and I think we have learned a lot of lessons about how to handle fire um but it seems like there's a a bigger story here about how we approach the past and how we approach death and um, how we, you know, dignify lives that are lost by remembering them or not. I'm I'm thinking more in terms of how do we approach information. When does when does information necessarily become 
important or when does it get generally ignored? I, yeah. I'm thinking sort of in terms of like, say, say, well, say the star is born, a singer. Mm-hmm. How does a singer get to be the big star? There's millions of, you know, there's hundreds or ten or hundreds at least of absolutely wonderful uh, musicians out there that could could rise to the top. And and why don't they rise to the top? And and sort of the subject of of history and past information. Why does certain past information rise to the top and and other not? You know, it's just luck, uh, maybe luck of the draw. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got you for exactly thirty minutes, <laughs> so I'm going to let you go. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Matt. I really, really appreciate it. Artifact 4. Mama. Wisconsin is a magical and mysterious place. I recall, without having it on hand, that in American Gods, Neil Gaiman described the House on the Rock as being built in a place of extraordinary spiritual energy that drew its creator in and inspired him to build this home obsessively and fill it obsessively with enormous collections of knickknacks, dolls, guns, and even a three-story tall sea monster. What he left out was the whole rest of southern Wisconsin. In Monroe, you'll find the National Mustard Museum, the bottom floor of which is dedicated to collections of mustard accoutrement memorabilia. Why? Why not? In Sumter, near Baraboo, there's Doc Avermore's Forevertron, the largest scrap metal sculpture in the world, a steampunk tower the Doc built to launch himself, quote, into the heavens on a magnetic lightning force beam. The man behind Doc Evermore, perhaps not at all coincidentally, also built many of the installations for the House on the Rock. And then, just 11 minutes' drive from the House on the Rock, there's Taliesin. In 1909, Mama Bhutan Borthwick left her family in Oak Park, Illinois, to pursue a partnership with Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect who invented prairie-style architecture and whose structures dot the Midwestern landscape. The couple traveled to Europe to escape the publicity surrounding their affair, and when they returned, they returned to Spring Green, Wisconsin, to Wright's family land, to build Taliesin according to the philosophy and aesthetic principles of Swedish feminist Ellen Key. Mama, in particular, had become enthralled by Key's writing while overseas, going so far as to visit Key at her newly completed estate, Strand, in 1910. He preached an almost fanatical devotion to artistic production, which is perhaps why Mama found her philosophy so appealing. She'd fallen in love with an artist and left everything to be with him. As an illustration, in a letter to Mama, Key wrote, quote, Marriages kept inviolable have doubtless produced many great advantages to culture, but it is not to them that art and poetry owe their greatest debt of gratitude. Without unhappy or criminal love, the world's creations of beauty would at this moment be not only infinitely fewer, but above all, infinitely poorer. 
He stood against marriage, believing rather in partnerships entered into willingly, happily, and most of all, in the service of the creation of beauty. She wrote spellbindingly, and her ideas attracted deep devotion from her followers, Mama Borthwick included. This, despite the fact that even for early feminism, Key's belief in free love and legal divorce was radical. Today, it's hard to square away her advocacy for eugenics, which extended into this belief that no sacrifice was too great for the cause of beauty. Mama Borthwick did not adhere smoothly to Key's principles. While Key celebrated Borthwick's divorce from Edwin Cheney, she expressed concern over Mama's abandonment of her children. In the end, Borthwick and Cheney agreed to a shared custody arrangement in which the children would spend summers with Borthwick and Wright at Taliesin. Meanwhile, the couple pursued, as best they could, Key's ideals of love in Spring Green. Taliesin was a combination home and workspace for both Borthwick and Wright. Borthwick devoted her days to translating Key's works from German to English, while Wright entered into one of the most productive and creative periods of his career. Borthwick consulted Wright on her translations, and he funded their publication. When Wright was away, Borthwick oversaw his drafting room at Taliesin. All accounts make it seem as if Taliesin, both as a home and as a philosophical experiment for the couple, was going to be a permanent and very happy arrangement for everyone involved. In the summer of 1914, Wright hired Julian Carlton as a cook for Taliesin. In the beginning, Carlton and his wife, Gertrude, were friendly figures on the estate. As the summer wore on, however, Gertrude noted that Julian was becoming increasingly paranoid, and he became argumentative with other employees. After seeing Carlton holding a butcher knife and staring out a window one night, Borthwick and Wright decided to terminate his employment. On August 12th, draftsman Emile Brodel called Carlton, quote, a black son of a bitch for not following an order which seems to have initiated the events that followed. On the 14th, Brodel and Carlton had a physical altercation. On August 15th, Carlton's last day of employment, he asked carpenter William Weston for some gasoline, supposedly to clean a stain out of a rug. He served lunch to the studio and estate employees, locked the door of the dining room, and exited to the veranda where Mama was eating lunch with her children, John and Martha. He struck Mama in the head with a hatchet, killing her instantly, and proceeded to kill John in his chair. Martha ran, but Carlton hunted her down, murdered her, brought her body back to the veranda, and lit all three bodies on fire. As the house caught fire, Carlton re-entered, splashed the rugs and floor with gasoline, and waited outside the dining room with the hatchet to kill anyone who tried to escape. After murdering everyone he could, Carlton attempted and failed to commit suicide by drinking hydrochloric acid. He was charged with the murder of Mama Borthwick, the only death that was witnessed by a third party, and he died of starvation in his jail cell before he could be tried. Wright was in Chicago at the time and returned to Taliesin immediately upon hearing news of the fire and murders. Although he has a well-earned reputation for egocentrism, 
Wright's love for Borthwick is evident in the aftermath. He was temporarily blinded by his grief. He explained the principles by which he and Borthwick lived in his autobiography, failing to explicitly credit Key. He wrote to Key after Mama's death, however, saying, quote, The lightning struck us. Why, no one can say. All that remains to be done is to keep it from sinking in so deep that my usefulness will be gone. Or rather, to take it as the heart of her would have me and put the soul of her into the forms that take shape under my hands. We lived richly. She was taken suddenly, without warning or pain to her, I am sure, just as we were beginning to feel that the bitter struggle was giving place to the quiet assurance of the peace and place we coveted together. Lena Johamison, the author of one of the sources on Taliesin this week, criticized Wright's biographers for their oversight of Mama Borthwick's importance in his life. The real losers in this story, she says, are the biographers of Frank Lloyd Wright. With one exception, all of them have in this regard displayed a lack of sensitivity to the significant insignificances in history. Wright seems to have realized fairly early on the power of women in the society to come. Should not these circumstances have been reason enough to justify a detailed study of Mama's contribution to his intellectual life? I leave you with these questions this week. How and why do historical events and figures become significant? Is there a way to reframe the way we think about or approach history to elevate what Johamison calls the significant insignificances? And what tiny but crucial details do you care about in your historical subject of interest? If you'd like to get in touch with me with your answers, reach out on Twitter and Instagram at LadyCryptoid or email LadyCryptoid at gmail.com. You can find a detailed list of sources in the show notes for this week's episode. Thank you so incredibly much for listening, and if you enjoyed the experience despite it all, you know I'd so appreciate it if you'd subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. I'll see you next time.